But wow, yeah. that feeling when my first page yeah. came out. And then telling my mum and dad, you know, going home at Christmas, and they'd say, well, what did you do, Anthony? I was like, well, I did the layout. I was like, what? Did you take the picture? No. Did you write the words? No. What did you do? <laughs> Um, good point. <laughs> Stuck it down. <laughs> um, but sticking it down is important. You can make a story much better than it is in its ingredients. There's a thrill. There's a real, a real thrill. Hello, welcome to Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo. This week I'm chatting to Tony Chambers, who's someone I've known for a long time and have a huge amount of respect for. Tony started his career at the Sunday Times magazine. He then became the art director of GQ and latterly went on to be the editor of Wallpaper, which really defined the aesthetic of the noughties and taught us all how to live like urbane Scandinavians, uh, myself included. Speaking of which, um, today I've come to his fabulous duplex apartment on the Barbican Estate in London to find out more about his life through the lens of the homes that he's lived in. Tony's working class upbringing in Liverpool, I think, gave very little clue about what kind of career he might go on to have. He wasn't afraid to go deep in this conversation, and I think he surprised even himself um, with how emotional he found it. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did, uh, and happy listening. So, Tony, tell me about where you grew up, your family home, in Liverpool, right? Correct, yes, born and bred and grew up in Liverpool in an area called Walton, which is central north Liverpool, not far from Goodison Park, home of okay. Everton Football Club. Are you an Everton fan? I am. You are, okay. Most original people from Liverpool are Evertonians. Actually, my dad wasn't interested in football and I'm the youngest of, I have three elder sisters okay. um, and they weren't interested in football. My mum wasn't. But my dad thought it would be a good thing for me to have an interest. So I asked his friends at work, which would be the better team to take him to. And they said, oh, Everton are a nicer club. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he took me. In him. He took me there even though he wasn't interested. And, uh, and I loved it. And yeah, so when I was about nine years old. And was it a working class kind of environment? What sort of house yes. was it? And, yeah. yeah. Uh, a very modest, very nice, structured Victorian house in a nice residential bit. So growing up in the early 70s, all fine, but then by the 80s, it really, really collapsed, you know. Became really, looking back, desperately, desperately sad and poor. But in the early years, it was, it was really rather nice. So you got three older sisters. Yes. But you were the youngest and you were the boy. Yeah. So where, how, how did you fit into that family in that dynamic? Well, again, it was a, such a huge advantage, I think, looking back to have mm. three elder sisters and be influenced educationally and culturally. You know, so I was all the pop music that was, you know, got influenced by was because of them. Just having women, you know, around you is a good thing. You're comfortable with women, always have been. That just makes life a lot easier. You know, they're not a mystery, um, <laughs> which they are to lots of boys, I think. And when you're growing up, when you're an adolescent, I was very, very comfortable because surrounded by them. Yeah. Um, Kind of spoiled, Mm. you know, because I was a little brother. But also picked on quite a bit, you know, sort of it's rough and tumble. But also, really, they loved me, so I was spoiled as well. Yeah. Little Anthony. Little Anthony. (laughs) Our Anthony. Our Anthony, yeah. Yeah. So if if you look back on yourself as a child, what, what would you have been doing? What were your kind of passions at that point? Um, passions would have been, um, I, I did like school, so I was fortunate then, I went to nice schools, and then friends around about, yeah, football would, was a key thing, pop music, culture generally, because Liverpool's, you know, famous for being culturally rich, uh, which always has been, and still is, and music was obviously a very key thing, creativity, art, music, um, all those well, things. On, were, on that front, Tony, I mean, what, what was the sort of long tail of the Beatles being from Liverpool and being around at that time. I mean, were you very aware of that in the 70s still? Or I think in the 70s they probably had a bit of a dip in terms yeah. of they weren't that fashionable. So I remember it wasn't really a big issue um, or a big influence. They weren't in the past enough to be appreciated Exactly, yet. Yeah. exactly. It was still too recent. Yeah. Uh, clearly remember John Lennon's assassination yeah. um, as a huge thing. 
That was a massive thing, and my dad waking me up to tell me that because the news had come in very early. So that was a very significant thing. But the Beatles themselves then didn't have much of an influence. No, it was was David Bowie for me. Was it a lot of people? Yeah, he was the, the the great figure that influenced me both in terms of music but then also anything he talked about you know when he became an obsessive fan because he was so influenced by literature and art so if he was into something I'd want to get into it. So what, what did he get you into then? Um, well art generally so that was the pivotal thing that made me think I wanted to study art both at school and then go to art school so anything he talked about whether it be Egon Schiele you know the Bauhaus he might have mentioned in an interview and you devour all this in the NME Jean Genet, you know, weird and wonderful people like that, that yeah. a kid from a working class background normally you wouldn't probably be exposed to. Right, um, so when you hear, when you read that, you know what I mean, or hear it on the radio interview, you would uh, go to the library and try and find out about this person. Couldn't Google it then, of course. Yeah, That's uh, really interesting. What about the fashion as well then? Was that an influence or was that not so much your thing? Not then, no. Don't, yeah. I don't think fashion existed then, did it? Mm. Or else you went to... Army and Navy stores mm. and got cool clothes. Mm. So your clothes were of, of importance. And yeah, I suppose if you mean a fashion in terms of influence by David, it would be secondhand stuff. It would be, um, yeah. Yeah. And, but no, I didn't wear, uh, I didn't dress like Ziggy Star. You didn't? <laughs> okay. oh, I was hoping you would. <laughs> uh, that would, uh, at Goodison Park, I don't think that would have gone down too well in <laughs> those days. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Probably okay now. <laughs> So let's talk about the family home a moment then. I think you've got some pictures, haven't you? I have, I yeah. So these are probably quite surprising in terms of what I ended up doing, um, in terms of working up wallpaper. But did it have an influence on me or not? No idea. So these were taken after my dad had died. Um, so he'd lived in the house that we used to live in. And he wasn't well. Okay, wow, look at that. So you've got the brown pattern carpets. And my granny had that carpet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wall-to-wall carpets, which is, you know... Brown sofa with some sort of uh, chintz cushions on it. Yeah, I mean, pattern everywhere. Pattern everywhere. Uh, fake brick wallpaper. I mean, quite insane. Wow. So, so, and at, at the time, of course, it wouldn't really mean much to because probably everybody's place was like that. But the most far-removed <laughs> wallpaper um, well, yeah, aesthetic. But you know what? From doing this podcast, it, it endlessly fascinates me that actually most of the people that we talk to just come from, you know, very, I hesitate to use the word ordinary, but you know what I yeah. mean, ordinary homes. Sure. And, and actually, in a way, creativity seems to stem from that somehow. Maybe. It's yeah. like you said, you got your influences from other places and there's nothing wrong with that. This reminds me, and this is exactly like my granny's house in Norwich. Yeah. Could be the same house almost. So how old were you when your dad passed away out of interest? Um, I was, let's think... Should know, shouldn't I? 32. He hadn't been well for a number of years. He'd had a stroke, so he wasn't great, but yeah. it was still, you know, still a terrible shock when, yeah. when it happens. Yeah. yeah. And so was he quite young then? Was he... Yes, really. Yeah, yeah. In the late 60s. Late 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a shock. Yeah, it really is a shock, isn't it? I, I asked because I, I lost my own father probably about three years ago. Actually, pretty much exactly three years ago. It, you know, hits you like nothing else, isn't it? Mm-hmm. My mum died not long ago, so she lasted a lot longer. Mm-hmm. She had dementia in the end, and it was almost okay. a blessing when she went. But still, memories come flooding back, and yeah. um, because it suddenly hits you that you will never see this person again. So all those things are, have a huge impact. Um, and actually, you know, my mum and dad, a big drive in my education, and then. Um, ambitions and wanting to do well was to please them. I didn't want to let them down because uh, they'd been so supportive of me. And I remember they were mildly worried that going into art, how would I make a living? They just thought, art school, artist, oh my God, he will be poor. But they supported <laughs> me because um, artists are poor, aren't they? Yeah. Bang off yeah, yeah. people like that. They die in poverty. But they still supported me. Mm. So sort of deep down I was determined to do well, to sort of make them proud. Mm. Um, so yeah, when he died, it was, and he was extremely proud because my first job was at the Sunday Times magazine, so straight from college and wow, he could tell his friends, our Anthony works at the Sunday Times. Mm. Um, so yeah, he died proud, I think of that. But still, 
it really hits you that you know you want him to share in other things and mm-hmm. you know because we had a we had a good relationship on that on that level he was well educated interested politically so the Sunday Times was fascinating he knew Andrew Neil was my ultimate boss and he hated Andrew Neil you know <laughs> in the nicest possible way yeah. you know because Neil especially then was such a aggressively right wing yeah. uh, journalist my dad was quite intrigued about me being within that organisation I was on the magazine and the magazine was a very and I reassure him that the magazine was a completely different body far more liberal and left wing well no I'd, I'd, yeah. love, I'd love to ask you more about that experience and just before we do I'd just to sort of stay on your parents for a sec so what did they did, did your mum work and what did your dad do so my mum went to work after I was maybe 10, 12 years old and was a dinner lady. So before that, she wasn't working. She was bringing us up. I think before we were born, she worked at Tate and Lyle. Okay. Yeah, sugar factory. My dad was a warehouse foreman at a nuts and bolts factory mm. called Davidson Timmons. And our house was full of nuts, bolts, washers and things like that that he'd bring home. Was it? Um, leftovers. So it was quite weird, but beautiful things. My dad was, uh, like a lot of working class people, uh, extremely uh, diligent, hardworking, proud of his job. Never took a day off work, ever, in his whole time. If he was ill, he'd take it as holiday, because he just felt he shouldn't. Has that rubbed off on you? A bit. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you... you totally. Yeah. <laughs> So actually, as a boss then, as you have been more latterly in your yeah. career, has that followed through? Have you been quite tough on oh, your staff? I'm hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I'm not hardcore. Um, I'm tough, but I lead by example. And yeah, of course, if you're ill, you should, you should have time off and you should be... No, I mean, my dad's example is an example to me in the opposite way because he was so loyal and so dedicated and driven by a work ethic to the point of never taking a day off. And in the end, didn't get any reward for that because the company was taken over by this other company and various bad things happened. It was the Thatcher period, which was, as we know, extremely tough on Liverpool and on uh, workers' rights. And they brought in other bosses above him who were Thatcher right and treated him very poorly. Mm. And it ended very badly. Um, Details I won't go into, but... Um, shocking so actually he was a fool in many respects to be so loyal and trustworthy and honest in that way and then he a bit of betrayed ultimately yeah yeah he, yeah. Was, he was betrayed ter- terribly um, he was so dedicated and certain in what he was doing was right and how he'd ran the business as he had but then changes in management and disrespectful people who were disrespectful to him. I mean, I will, I will, I'll tell the story. Um, he um, lost his temper because he was being talked down to by a 22-year-old you know, who'd been planted in there and was treated so disrespectfully he lost his temper and he punched the guy. <laughs> and, um, that was the end of that. So he lost his job immediately and then lost his pension and things like that. I think managed to get something back. And then after that, had a stroke. Oh, wow. God, that's awful. From the pressure. And um, kept that from us. Um, Didn't tell us. Tried to hide the fact he'd had a stroke. Did he? Yeah, and I came back from our college when he was acting weirdly. And he'd said, oh, I've had bad toothache. I'm on drugs for my toothache to try and hide it from us. It's so sad. And I can kind of laugh about it now, but it was so desperately sad. My older sister said, there's something really weird with my dad. We took him to the doctor. The doctor said, you've had a stroke. <laughs> um, get to hospital for a checkup. Um, and he never fully recovered from that. You know? um, was he in denial to himself as well totally, as you guys then? Totally, right. totally, yeah. So that's, it's a, it's a, that is a very... Um... At that point, he had to admit to us yeah. what had happened. So he there was, was so he felt there was an incident where this had happened, but he just brushed under the carpet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, he did the right thing. Do you think the guy deserved it? Yeah. Oh, so with, the, with the punch. Other people, yeah. From what I've heard, again, you know, it's the other guys who worked with him. The guy was awful. Uh, yeah, disrespectful to somebody who'd worked 
you know, 30 years there. Um, I don't think that would happen now anyway. Yeah. Um, no, so it's, yeah, so his work ethic and his honesty, the three phrases that stick with me over the years, um, things used to say, um, to teach, to tell us, you know, honesty is the best policy. Yeah. I have to agree with. Um, never be a show off, never be a big head. Because uh, people don't like baguettes, which I think is correct. Yeah. Uh, definitely. And the other one, uh, money is the root of all evil. Um, uh, or the pursuit of money, I suppose, isn't it? It's a kind of biblical thing. And he wasn't religious at all. And I often look back now and think, God, in this age of social media, those three things are absolutely the things that are lauded. So you've got to be a show off in social media. You've got to. Uh, what was the first one? Honesty. Honesty is the best policy. Yeah. Instagram, you just lie, don't you? To all lies. And yeah, money is the root of all evil. The pursuit of money through these things is is the goal for all of, you know, social media and Instagram and whatever I'm sort of talking about. It's ironic that those three things are the things that drive it. You know, you tell fibs, totally. I know. Uh, so well, what, what do you make of that then? How do you rationalize that because you have a business you have to do social media i know yeah. you're on social media because i follow you so it's very modest as you see I, yeah. post, I, I struggle but you have to do it yeah because if you don't do it now people think well you're not doing any work or you're not you're not alive you're not um so it's a, it, sometimes i wish i'd never started it because mm. you know once you start then you there's an expectation but of course it's a wonderful tool because you do see you learn so much from it mm. you see so much it's such a fast way of mm. of um hearing news and seeing news but you have to now, I think the dust has settled a bit. Everybody knows you take 50% of it as true. You take it with a pinch of salt, don't you? Well, I, I think what's really interesting about social media is that we're obviously uh, tribal and we're obviously traditionally have our sort of troop and our troop would have been our friends, close friends and family. Yeah. And, and, and actually you need approval from those people, otherwise you get kicked out of the troop. Yes. But of course now our collective troop has become the whole world, or at least certainly our following on social media. And we sometimes mistake that, I think, as the people that sort of care about us and judge us. So I think where we come unstuck is when we, we yeah, we, we care too much about what too many people think because we yes. mistake that for our, our close tribe. And I think that's, that to me is the downside of social media because it's very hard to rationalise that as you're doing it. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. That is the, the huge negative side of it. Um, but it's a... It's a necessary evil now, isn't it? So um, take me back then to how you got this job at the Sunday Times magazine. A huge uh, dose of luck, as most things are. After a foundation course in art in Liverpool, I went to Central School of Art, 85, degree in graphic design and typography, without knowing really what it was. Quite a struggle at first because it's complicated and um, many things you never really thought about. But when the penny drops, it became devotional, really, typography particularly. Um, the Sunday Times, they produced a magazine for the kids, for children. So the art editor on the magazine, Pedro Silman, he designed it and produced this magazine. He thought, well, we need somebody to help and work on it, so an intern. So they came, interviewed five students, so I selected out of five, and I got the job to, to work on it. Um, probably got the job because I was very honest in my appraisal of what it was. And I'd, again, I wasn't really interested in magazine design. Didn't really think magazines were designed. I thought they just fell off trees. But, uh, and I thought it looked rubbish. So I said to him, oh, looks rubbish. <laughs> and I think you probably like that. Uh, because it was designed with kids in mind and it was very kiddie and kind of uh, over the top in its layout. And at that stage, the penny had dropped in terms of graphic design typography as well as full on modernism. Yeah. Bauhaus, Mies van der Rohe, Walter Gropius, I wanted minimalism. So. You wanted something rational. Yeah. They, yeah, okay. So I was naive, I was being stupid, because of course the design that Pedro had done was brilliant for the market. When you become more uh, experienced, you know that that is the key part of what craft design is. It should be right for its for its audience. So I was being stupid when he told me later, he quite liked the fact that I, I told the truth. Yeah, again, so I went in and, and helped. And then on graduation, they offered me three months' work, and then that three months carried on to another three months, then a year. And then I did get a job and ended up staying there for 10 years and learned everything you could possibly learn about the combination of graphic design with 
journalism. I mean, I did nothing but make tea and clean the layouts. It was still the physical thing. It was pre-computer, so all layouts were done almost like a scrapbook, you know, by photocopying pictures and sticking them down and sticking them down. So I would clean the layouts, so it was done with cowgum. Um, but very happy to do that because you were just listening to these amazing mm-hmm. people. And then after maybe a series of months, you got to do your first layout, which would have been the Life in the Day page, the page at the back. Okay. So a very simple, simple thing. But wow, yeah. that feeling when my first page yeah. came out. And then telling my mum and dad, you know, going home at Christmas and... They'd say, well, what did you do, Anthony? So well, I did the layout. Whoa. Did you take the picture? No. Did you write the words? No. What did you do? <laughs> uh, good point. Stuck it down. <laughs> uh, but sticking it down is important. And when that penny drops and you feel there's a responsibility and a, mm. and a, a power there, that you can make a story much better than it is in its ingredients or you can make it worse if you do it badly mm. is um it was a thrill it was a real, a real thrill and, and enough of a, a drive to keep you very happy and also the subject matter was always so interesting you know as the um designer or the art director or even a junior designer how do you think it's really important that they really read absorb and understand the copy and the intent of the piece that they might be working on yeah i mean I, Absolutely. I mean, it was a, an essential part that, yeah, without reading and understanding the copy and having a relationship with that text, how can you do a, an appropriate layout? Mm. How can you choose the right pictures? Yeah. So you have to read it, understand it, be completely at one with it, mm. and then treat it as a visual story, because mm. it is a visual story mm. primarily. Now, no matter how good the text is, mm. if it doesn't look good, nobody's going to read it. They're going to mm. flip past those pages. So... That was understood, and everybody bowed to the decision of what the other one wanted, mm-hmm. which was incredible. As a kid going in there thinking, you know, we're just doing the layouts, it was the complete opposite. The editors, the sub editors, would wait to hear what the art department said or did. I first became aware of you and your work when I was a young sub editor at World of Interiors, and you were art director at GQ in the same building in Vogue House. So tell us about your GQ years. A friend who worked on the magazine but also had good contacts at Condé Nast said, oh, the job at GQ is up because the art director had left. And he said, the editor's absolutely lovely man. You'd really like him. Angus McKinnon, who was the editor then. And so I had an interview and got on with him. Such a lovely, intelligent, thoughtful man. He was so refreshingly different. He was a sort of Oxford Don type. Um, so gentle, so intelligent, and he had pictures of owls in his office. <laughs> I remember. Right. So he's a, a lover of owls. I thought, oh wow, that's so lovely, and yeah. different. And I was confident I could bring my journalistic knowledge yeah. to GQ um, in terms of it was ostensibly men's fashion, men's lifestyle, but it did have a number of hard-hitting news stories and financial stories in it as well to get, give it a good balance. So a big change because it was the first time it was a magazine that was sold on the newsstands. In isolation. Hit yeah. me quickly. Yeah. I was like, that is a difference because Sunday Times Mag was just, you did what you wanted really mm. because A, it was a, such an established and well-liked title that people bought, well, the whole package, but the cover wasn't selling it. Soon as that you realise that the cover sells the title, that was um, that was a pressure. And it's there for a month. So if you do a bad one, it's there <laughs> haunting you for a month. Tell me about the culture because it I mean there was a bit of a lads mad thick mag. Well it changed, you see, this is the yeah, yeah the big thing. The, the disaster it would seem like at the time. Angus was fired after two months of me joining. Wow, okay. Um, but there was that huge culture change of the lads mags happening. Mm. So ninety seven, so loaded FHM, Maxim, titles had launched. And for a number of years, Condé Nast and GQ particularly, and Angus felt that is not our market. When they started to sell 500,000, 700,000, 900,000 at one stage, I think FHM sold. I think Condé Nast thought, this is, it is our market, it's eating our lunch. Well, for context, what would GQ have been selling? 200. Okay. At best, At best yeah. 170, 180, and going down. Mm. Because, yeah, it started to get 
So I loved Angus and I loved what he was doing and what he was trying to do, which was to keep a particular standard and not go down market, if you want to, you know, in simplistic terms. But once you start going down, I learned that quickly as well. Wow, that's, yeah. Everyone's your friend if you're doing well. Mm. As soon as you start to dip and lose money, it's over. And that was it for Angus. He resigned. We've had to let Angus go. Um, and, uh, but don't worry, we've got a very exciting new editor joining, James Brown from Loaded. And my heart sunk. I thought, no, because I knew James a little bit from the scene and I never knew what he was like. What was he like? Out of control. Yeah. I can say this because his book's just come out and it's, it's, all, it's all there. Alcoholic and cocaine addict. And I've just left a really nice job. <laughs> I've done so many times. It's like, I don't... I don't want to do this. I don't want to work for Loaded, which I presume would be the case if they're bringing in the guy who started Loaded. That's where they want to go. Anyway, long story short, it was actually a really interesting period for me and the fashion director because they said to him, don't touch the layouts, the art departments or the fashion because right. that's what brings the money in. So actually it was a really clever trick. So the content could go much racier mm. um, and you know raise a few eyebrows in terms of sex, drugs, rock and roll, football. But if the layouts looked elegant mm. and the photography was still up market, Mr. Armani, Mrs. Prada, they don't, they're not going to be reading it. And James was very happy. He was tricky because he had certain issues. Um, but when you have a license to, you do your stuff. And actually trusted us, trusted me, because I was grown up. Anyway, it was, it was a good period, but then Certain things happened when it went too far, the content went too far, and the story mm. of the Nazis being in the issue, the best-dressed men of the 20th century, was the thing that um, he didn't put in. But the culture he created, which was needed to make the magazine more vibrant and crazy and interesting and get it talked about, which it did, sales rocketed. But then there was a notorious issue where it was the 200 best-dressed men of the 20th century, and James commissioned copy to go with it. He didn't like the copy. He thought it was dull and childish. So we just cut the copy. And I remember this to the day, and I remember saying, that's not a good idea. Right. And I said, you've got to have some copy. You've got to have qualifying copy. Otherwise, it's just a picture. I said, no, just do it. And he had to go. So, okay. So it was just 200 pictures of cool people with captions, the name. Number 78, Mick Jagger. Number 79, Fred Astaire. And the culture of kind of, you know, fast and loose that he brought into the office backfired in that case because it was a free-for-all. Anybody was jumping on the layout, saying, oh, come on, he can't be... Uh, Paul Weller's got to be bigger than that. Somebody put the Nazis in there? I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Nobody saw it. Went to press because it was late. Mm. So, yeah, number 79, the Nazis. And if there had been qualifying text on that, it wouldn't have gone through mm. because somebody would have had to read it. Yeah. The sub-editor would have had to... do so have to write it as well, yeah. Fuck is this? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But anyway, publishing, he's fired, so I had three editors within two years. And then Dylan Jones came, who was an old friend from the Sunday Times, and he steadied the ship, and he was the right person to do these things, and um, stayed another three or four years, say seven years there. But learned so much about the machinations of publishing and mm. saying to the readers, buy me, buy me, buy me, and mm. a broader audience... But to the advertiser, it's keeping them happy because it's still looking like an elegant, upmarket fashion magazine. Mm. So yeah. that's clever, clever magician's act. Yeah, yeah. A very quick interlude. If, like me, you're incredibly nosy and you love looking around other people's houses, uh, I really recommend that you sign up to the Modern House newsletter. Every week we do a roundup of the best content from our website, including behind-the-scenes films and photo shoots of amazing people in their equally amazing spaces. It's a fantastic resource if you're doing a refurb project or you just want some interior inspiration. Uh, and in case you don't know by now, The Modern House is an estate agency, so of course we also provide a roundup of the most beautiful and inspiring homes currently on the market throughout the UK. To sign up to the newsletter, please go and click on the link in the show notes. It's worth it, I promise. Right, back to the podcast. Where we're recording this is your apartment yeah. on the Barbican estate. Yeah. You've been here 27? I think it might be 27, 27 yes. 27 years-ish. 
I don't meet many people that have been in their home for that long. So you obviously like it. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, I like it. I love it. Um, but also, I don't like moving. It's, it's a stressful thing, isn't it? Moving home. Um, but yeah, it's more the fact that I love it and the best decision probably I ever made. Um, so it was myself and my girlfriend at the time. Lucy, my girlfriend, we both loved the Barbican from a distance, you know. So she just went, had nosiness, no intention of moving here. But I came back and went, we've got to move there. The flats are amazing. Mm. Um, so yeah, very fortunate decision because then most people hated it. All our friends hated it. Did they? From the outside. From the outside, yeah. When they came to visit, they went, oh, I see. But presumably people, people sort of said that thing, oh, it looks like council housing. Totally, yeah. 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 And, you know, it was, the style of architecture was still very much in the unfashionable stage then. Yeah. Um, people who lived here, so the demographic has changed drastically. People who lived there then tended to be city workers. They'd maybe go away for the weekends. So there wasn't much of a community then. And you sense they didn't really like it. They didn't like the aesthetic, but they liked the fact that it was safe and clean and all those things. Um, whereas that has changed now, of course, because mm. it's become fashionable um, and being recognised for the quality that it is. So it's a very different, that gives a very different vibe to mm. the place. But um, yes, it was unfashionable then and therefore far more affordable. And um, so very lucky from that perspective. So it was unfashionable, but what did you identify about it that you liked. I mean, it's it's clear now we're sitting in this space. We've got a double height space, got an amazing top light coming over us, beautiful open tread staircase and so on. But what was it that you thought? It was the style to... of architecture I'd liked yeah. from art school. So when that penny dropped about design and typography and graphic design, architecture was the other really keen interest I had because I saw such a parallel between the methodology and the structure and restrictions in a good way of graphic design and typography. I saw that the same architecture was like a 3D version of a grid. So a, a, a very beautiful modernist typographic grid was like a modernist building. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was just, that was the, the philosophy and style of design. That was my thing. It was a no brainer. Mm. Um, it was just that most of my friends didn't have that taste. Mm. So, but as I say, when they came to visit it and saw how lovely it was inside and saw the gardens. Well, the gardens and the lakes. And what's interesting actually sitting here is we've got the ducks quacking in the background. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's amazing. It's isn't incredible, it? yeah. And you don't hear any traffic because it's that any traffic. way secluded. Yeah, it's just yeah. a bit, just significantly that far away from main roads. And mm. you, don't, you don't hear it for central London. Mm. No, it's, it's, it'll never happen again. I mean, as a piece of planning, as well as a piece of, superb design by, you know, wonderful architects who were, you know, far from star architects, they were just the local architects. Again, fortuitously, they were brilliant mm. and gave their whole life to it, produced this thing that will never be, well, the planet will never be built again. There'll be three more blocks here, yeah, wouldn't yeah. there? Six, where yeah. the water is, they'd yeah. squeeze in another yeah. six towers. But let's talk about the space. So this is called a Type 35, isn't it? So there's lots yeah. of different layouts you get on the estate. Exactly type 36. They're all they are it's basically type 35 because we're on the corner, there's a slightly different layout. So what what do you think about the layout of this one and why does it work for you? I mean the double height is the it's the the thing, isn't it? Space and light. Mm. It hits you as you walk in because it's such a a pleasure and and I think the human spirit responds to that feeling of open space and light. That makes it um, a luxury, really, isn't it? It's sort of a, a, a blessing, mm. an extravagance, you mm. know, one, one could call it, um, because you are, it's non-functional space. Mm. Um, in, in London, where space is such a premium, but it adds so much that is difficult to define. Mm. But you just feel it as you felt it, as you came in, mm. you, you said, you know, you lifts your spirits when you, it when does, you get, yeah, get it that does. sense. What is it? Have you heard of the prospect refuge theory? No. I think it applies really well actually to this flat particularly, but there was a geographer called Jay Appleton in the 70s, right? And he came up with this theory that um, we evolved on the African savannah 
And at that time, to ensure survival, we needed places of prospect, i.e. perhaps the top of a hill where you can see threats coming and you can see food sources. And then you needed refuge like trees or a cave or whatever, clearly to hide from things uh, and to take shelter. And actually, if you apply that to our current living spaces, I think the same things sort of still ring true. So in here, you've got a living space that's kind of the ultimate prospect because you've got all this light coming and you say it's really high. You feel very open. You've even got a view over water so you can see where your water source is and you can work <laughs> out you're going to get some food if you need it because you can go and you know, barbecue a duck. Um, and then you've got these very refuge-like sleeping spaces that are actually they're not hugely light are they they're quite cellular and they're quite introverted very yeah and actually i think it's kind of the ideal way of living now you say it yeah, yeah. i do feel it yeah and there are many modular spaces in a sense or adjustable spaces within it that yeah. make them more refuge like yeah um, no very that's that's great well exactly adaptable space as well which yes. is what the barbican does well and the, the the type 20 flats which are lots of aren't they they're sort of l-shaped with a with a sliding door. So you can have a study or a, a spare bedroom, or you can just leave it open yeah. and enjoy the, the light that comes in. So that adaptability, I think, is what I really like about the barbecue yeah. flats as well. They had great fun, I think, designing these places. Endlessly fascinating how you could get so many varieties out of the same box, yeah, really. Exactly. Ostensibly. Um, uh, brilliant, brilliant design. And tell me about the community here, because do you feel like there's a sort of tribe of kind of designer types in the yeah. Barbican? So, so do you feel quite part of a network here, or are you quite self-contained? Self-contained. Yeah. yeah I try to avoid those designy types, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there are a lot more hipsters in design. <laughs> Can't move for them in the garden now. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a good thing. It's a really good thing, because it's uh, people who really love it. And you can't move for photographers because it's a such a fabulous thing to photograph on the subject of which am i right in saying that harry styles shot here recently that as it was videos right so and he did right outside the door yeah. right outside yeah. here yeah, it's, really been, it's just eased off now but for six months after that video was released uh stylers they're known stylers like uh, i mean just it was a pilgrimage it was a place where they were all doing the dance and stuff it was lovely <laughs> it was really really sweet and of course, also, it's um, the Penguin Pool is in it as well by Lubeckin. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's like, wow, he's got his art director's yeah. tuned in. Knows the onions. But that, show, that shows you, doesn't it? I mean, if Harry Styles is making a music video here, as you say, compared to what this place was like when you first arrived yes. 27 years ago, oh, yeah. the change of fortunes no. and appreciation is, is quite extraordinary. Exactly. Maybe Get Carter would have been filmed here or... Um, yeah. Uh, Clockwork Orange, but not, yeah. but not Harry Styles. But that is architecture in a nutshell, isn't it? Mm. Um, I have this theory that the reason architects live so long is a they don't start till late, do they? You can't really get anything built until you're about forty, by and large, unless you're very lucky. But of course, your work inevitably goes out of fashion twenty years after you've built it. That's sure. just the nature of fashion. So you have to cling on. You have to stay alive until it comes back in fashion. Oh, that's it, a great theory, isn't it? it? But it's yeah, I really I like think that. It's true. So it's like yeah. if you die at sixty, it's likely your best work mm. will be unfashionable mm. and like kind of derided. Mm. If you live till eighty odd, it will come back in fashion and you'll be lauded again. Oh, so interesting. you've got to hang in there. Yeah. When you got here, it was you and your girlfriend at the time, and you were you know young and having fun here. Right now, you're a family man. You've got two kids, is that right? Yeah, uh, Olive is nine and Frank is three. So how has the flat adapted, or how have you adapted yourself to the flat through that period? It's Olive and Frank's place. Contrary to what the general thought was 20 odd years ago, it's, it's very, very child friendly. And there are lots of kids. Olive's got loads of mates, the Barbican babes, who are all yeah, Barbican residence. Uh, sofa is brilliant for the kids, but some of my friends say it's the most uncomfortable sofa ever designed. Why? Because it's so deep. deep. Okay. Yeah, and that was my fault. I went for the deep version. Yeah, yeah. Know, So you perch in the end. So it's probably not a but for the kids. It's like a yeah, yeah. huge play zone. Yeah. And it's a brilliant piece of design, brilliantly made, because it has withstood a lot of action. And what, is, what sofa is it? Um, the Kennedy sofa by... Uh, Portrona Frau. Talking about Portrona Frau obviously makes me think, you know, cast my mind back to your wallpaper days. Did you go to wallpaper from GQ? Yeah, creative director. Creative director. Different it's the title, same, sort of same thing. job, yeah, yeah. 
key difference was the staff, which is both a blessing but also quite a difficult at certain times, is that all the team were creative and visually led. And if everybody's concerned about how things look, mm. you had people, oh, I don't think, I think it should be this picture. Oh no, that's not a layout. <laughs> Whoa, back away. <laughs> <laughs> not really, you'd embrace it. Um, so yeah, it's an amazing, yeah, working in an environment where all these people were incredible, creative, vocational, crazy people that were passionate. That's interesting. And then you made the step from the art department to the, the big job of editor. How did you go about balancing this sort of respect for what's already there versus obviously putting your own imprint on it? Well, it was no brainer really because the the core values and the DNA of it was right. To me, it was just clear being a reader as I was that it had got a bit predictable okay. after five years. It had become a bit, not boring, but samey. Wallpaper became an adjective very early on. Wow, what a reflection of its success. And the New York Times used it in a sentence of like a very wallpaper building or wallpaper type people. What an amazing strength that was. Later on, it started to become a little bit derogatory. Oh, it's a bit wallpaper because it became a bit of a cliche of a type of person. And I thought, well, it has to be, keep a DNA, but throw in some weird surprises and make it broader in its aesthetic and ideally have some stories in there that you would hope people go, that's not very wallpaper. And I thought that would be a sign of its success where there's a bit of a surprise and a shock. And how did you make it commercially viable? I mean, presumably, what, Wallpaper City Guide, was that introduced while you were editing? It was. So it was while I was still creative director. So when we started doing well, the publishing company trusted us to try a few more things. So how about this idea, very high-end, tightly edited travel guide, talking to this kind of audience, but not many things in it, rather than travel guides you normally have, which is have a thousand things in. Why not? Cut it down to here's the 10 best hotels, here's the 10 best pieces of culture to visit, and good paper, and paper at the back for making notes, quite self-indulgent things like that. Um, a bit like a double height ceiling, you know, you're not really getting anything literally from it, but it's it makes you feel a bit different because there's blank pages at the back that you can make notes and do sketches, and um, all those things. Yeah. And it was amazing, as a marketing thing, an amazing success. Well, it, as a product, it was spectacularly good. I mean, I, I used them religiously. I thought yeah, they were absolutely nice. brilliant. Yeah. I really did. It was a pivotal moment, actually, that for reigniting the brand. Yeah, actually, it's mm. well remembered for bringing that one up. I think that was a moment where mm. it proved the magazine was going to live mm. rather than die after yeah. six years. Yeah. I want to talk about the future, bringing it back to the home. I get the sense you're going to be here a while longer, but in... Yeah, take me out in a concrete box. Right, exactly. <laughs> but in an imaginary world, and if you hadn't ever bought this flat, what, what, would, your, what would your future home look like? Um, travel has been such an intrinsic and important part of my life, but my life has changed significantly, and with kids, I don't want to be away for too long. So I thought a flying house <laughs> would be... Um, it's not too much to ask. No, is absolutely it? no, completely so, impossible. A house that can fly. Would it be this one? Yeah, yeah. So this on wings. Mm. So you could go to New York or to Istanbul, LA, but Olive and Frank and Georgia could come with me. And they're obviously super fast. And very eco as well. It'd be a new form of eco fuel that we'd use. So you get those that buzz of different cultures and different experiences, but you've still got your family and your your comforts and your refuge around you. But that would be good. So the barbecue, if you saw every now and then, little sections would pull away. You could away. detach it like Tetris almost, yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's, that's, that is the building of the future. So your, 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 your company now, TC and Friends, how do you characterise what it is TC and Friends is about? And, and stylistically, I suppose. Well, the name suggests it's me, Tony Jones, TC, and Friends is working with all the wonderful friends I've made, predominantly in the wallpaper years. Mm. Ostensibly, it's me and a very small team, three of us. Um, 
and it's it get pulled in all different directions to consult as well as to do and it might be in the more in fashion or in architecture then you can call on you can pick up the phone to somebody who's at work and you get to work with them on a particular job as yeah. a sort of plug-in yeah. which seems to work and I think it seems to be a kind of modern way of working rather than being burdened with a big team mm-hmm. and so it's creative consultancy in all its guises right in the simplest terms yeah yeah. Uh, actually to be perfectly honest and it's a bit sad I think it's undervalued and if you are just the designer just if you are the designer on a project I've sensed you're not treated as respectfully as maybe if I was the overseer and I employed somebody else and I find that a little bit upsetting really but that's the world that you're seen as a tradesperson in some mm. respect mm. whereas I think it's the most valuable and should be the most respected thing in the world design visual communication and typography and, and because it is so powerful so you get treated with more respect and get paid more to talk about things or to do the big picture which is weird I think but that's the nature of it so fortunately I can do both and I try to keep that balance because I do want to do the doing otherwise there was no point in me leaving wallpaper if okay. I'm not doing the, doing the bricklaying you know, and the, okay. the, the designing Do you ever see yourself stopping work at some point? Yes and no. Mm. Sometimes when I get a bit tired, I want to, and I just think, why am I doing? Why am I doing this? But I think inherently, if you're creating from a creative sort of side, you've got to carry on. Mm. Got to live a long time, so my early stuff becomes fashionable again. You see, so I've got to carry on. (laughs) I should slow down, shouldn't I? In about five years or so, I suppose so. I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I'm not you're getting old. I'm just saying. No, No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, some people say they just cannot ever imagine stopping. I mean, I don't know, getting back to football, someone like Sir Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger and people like that, they work you know, well into their late 60s, 70s, don't they? And yes. You can't, you can't sort of suppress people like that, that enthusiasm. But then they do stop, don't they? They have to. Yeah. So I think you have to be realistic about that and just try to yeah, be philosophical on the side of staying in touch with it because it's such a beautiful industry, sector, Whatever wants to call it, area. So blessed to be in the creative world. Um, Do you worry about getting old? More after having the kids. Didn't yeah. care at all before. Um, but with the kids, obviously, absolutely hits you in the full on the mortality and the, the responsibility. And yeah, I don't want to. You know, I've got lots to do. I don't want to. Mm. Don't want to die. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you just a look back over your life. What do you think? you'll be most proud of? Oh, easy. This is an easy one. Definitely. The the growth of the the people who came through as interns or actually my PA, four PAs, all of whom went on to be design editor, New York editor, lifestyle editor. So allowing the team to fulfil their potential and seeing living examples of people doing brilliantly well, really makes me very happy to see loads of people that are doing great things and they're really successful. Um, yeah, there was a young lad at Sunday Times. We needed a young designer and there was a guy, my teacher, at one of my teachers at Central had stayed in touch and she was teaching at a rough college in East Ham. And she said, there's this kid we have here who's, he could go way off the rails. He's kind of a bit rough around the edges, but he has potential if there's any chance you could give him an internship or something and Jamie came in and I've never seen anyone so terrified in my life big lad sweating profusely he put a suit on which actually you know first time he'd ever wore a suit and um, we interviewed a few other people and I remember distinctly me and Macca the designer we said should we give it to the big lad give it to Jamie give him a chance yeah give it to the big lad and he came in raw as anything but words like <laughs> never seen anyone work so hard and literally just absorbed everything how we did things literally just sucked it all in ended up being overall art director at uh, BA magazines all the magazines that BA High Life wow. there's his name art director creative director of BA magazines Jamie it's like unbelievable like amazing got two kids really lovely life and Jane said he could go you'll end up in prison 
could end up in prison, no doubt about it, because he was on the wrong side of the tracks, mixing with the wrong people. Yeah. And what a life-changing thing that is. Through, you know, sorry, I feel a bit emotional. Yeah. It's amazing. It's an amazing answer, I have to say, yeah. because you could have talked about your own achievements, but I completely agree with you. You know, the reason that we all do this stuff is to help yeah. others bring other people through and find, help them find their passion. Oh, totally. And um, yeah, social mobility there in a nutshell. Yeah. So my final question is related to that really, which is um, getting back to what you said earlier actually, which is that a lot of what you did in your early days was about in a way pleasing your parents, especially your dad, because they'd given you that start in life, you know, from a pretty humble start. What do you think he in particular would make of what you've done and what you've achieved in your career? Um, well, he'd, be, he'd, be, he'd be so proud. I'd be delighted. I mean, again, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but particularly that period and maybe a bit earlier, social mobility and from working class background, it's education is the only way, really. And somebody like my dad was well-educated and saw the value in it. And it was totally that. He said, if you work hard at school, you will be able to achieve um, many things, but also you'd be a better person having um, ways of communicating and living and finding pleasure in things that actually don't cost money. So education gives you this ability to take pleasure in, in books or in looking at a painting that doesn't cost a penny. Um, mm. uh, so no, he'd be... Uh, Absolutely, really proud, and uh, Paul would tell me, don't show off, whatever you do. Nobody likes a big head. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much, Tony. It's been really, you. really, really interesting. Thank That's you. really lovely talking to you. And thanks for inviting us into your yeah. home and, you know, being so open and honest. Oh, thank you. No, it's been absolutely lovely. <laughs> thank you. Thanks thank you very so much. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Tony today. As always, we'll put some photos on the Modern House website, so do go and take a look. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate the show or leave us a quick review if you can, um, because it really helps us reach new listeners who haven't found us yet. It's also well worth following the show because you'll be alerted about new episodes as they get released. Thank you to our team at The Modern House for their work in producing this podcast. Uh, thanks to our executive producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, and also to Father for making the original music. Thank you also to all of you and see you next time.